Hi, and thank you for tuning in. You know, I don't know anybody doesn't have a hard time understanding what leadership is about. It has changed in the 21st century. And because it has changed, you know, there's not a lot of information out there that pulls it all together so that you have the steps you need to be the best leader that you can. Leadership is all about influence. And this podcast is about helping you understand how to influence others and to build the collaborative team that provides you the inclusive, high-performing workplace that you are looking for. Whether this is the first job you've had as a leader, whether you're an individual contributor, or you've been in leadership for 30 years, there is something for you on this particular podcast. It's called Remarkable Leadership Lessons, shared by Denise Cooper and her friends. And if you like, you can always go over to my website and pick up other gems that will help you become a remarkable leader. One of the things I like to talk about is what's the future of work? What are the things that we need to really be concerned with, or at least adding to our strategic plans so that we're in lockstep and, and trying to stay with what's going on and, and, and be ready for what the next is, as well as what do we personally need to start learning? What do we personally, as leaders, where's our growth pattern? So today is about AI. Imagine that, artificial intelligence. It is, the, it is coming. It is partially here. Obviously, we haven't evolved to where we want it to be. But as, a, as the leader of an organization, as the leader of a department, this is something you need to start digging deep into and at least understanding where we are now and where some of the some of the leading experts are saying we are headed. My guest today is Meredith Bruchard. She's an associate professor at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute in New York University. And she's a research director of the NYU Alliance for Public Interest and Technology. She has a book coming out. I believe it's going to be a little bit later this year. Uh, it just came out three weeks ago. Ah, look at that. I'm ahead. But it's called More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. It You can pick it up anywhere you want. But she previously wrote a book in 2018 called Artificial Unintelligence. Hmm. How Computers Misunderstand the World. And her research really focuses on artificial intelligence and investigative reporting with a particular interest in AI ethics and using data analysis for social good. She appears in the Emmy-nominated documentary Coded Bias, which is now on Netflix. Her work has been supported by the Rockefeller Institute or uh, Foundation Institute um, and the Institute of Museum and Library Science and the Toll Center at Columbia Journalism School. At any rate, this lady is, is out there. She is doing it the way we want to and in a topic that is really, really leading edge. We are particularly interested and much of our discussion today is going to be around one of the things that has a lot of people concerned about with AI, and that is how does AI handle issues of belonging, inclusivity, and diversity work. Her audience is primarily C-suite leaders, um, particularly CIO, chief information officers, who are trying to figure out how to use 
this technology. So with that, good morning. And how are you today? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. You know, we'd like to start with um, something about the guest. So if you have a favorite life lessons quote or guideline, would you share with us? Well, I think that one thing that I like to talk about a lot is kind of the reality behind artificial intelligence. And we all think a lot about Hollywood images of AI. And that is really exciting. It is really fun. But I think it's important to stay firmly within the bounds of what's real. So there is no Terminator. Uh, When we're talking (laughs) about AI, we just need to talk about what is actually here, as opposed to talking about existential risks or future harms. So let's stay grounded, basically. Yeah. (laughs) But I think there is some concern that people might have, I guess maybe because we've been socialized in movies and whatnot, that bad people are going to do bad things and good people are going to do unintended things. And I think this idea of developing uh, AI is probably on the heels of a good thing. But in your books, you you talk about how if we just think about it one way, the way we currently think about it, it can have some unintended consequences. What inspired you to kind of dig deep into this particular realm of AI? So that's a good question. I started my career as a computer scientist and I quit to become a journalist. And the reason that I left computer science was that I faced a lot of harassment. You read all of these textbook reasons that women and people of color are edged out of STEM careers. All of those things happened to me. Uh, And I thought the problem was me. And uh, it turns out that, no, it's actually not me. Like, I'm fine. Like, the problem is more structural. Uh, So I came back to computer science through journalism. Uh, I do something now called data journalism, which is the practice of finding stories in numbers and using numbers to tell stories. And I do a particular kind of data journalism called algorithmic accountability reporting in a world. That's a lot. Okay. You got to break that down. (laughs) I know. I got to break that down. Okay. A lot of big words there. Uh, So algorithmic accountability reporting exists because algorithms are increasingly being used to make decisions on our behalf. And traditionally, one of the functions of the press is to hold the powerful accountable. So in an algorithmically mediated world, the accountability function of the press has to transfer onto algorithms and their makers. So what I do is sometimes I write computer code in order to commit acts of investigative reporting. And then other times I work to open up the black boxes of algorithms and uh, help people understand what's inside and help people understand when algorithms are making decisions that are unfair or unjust. Mm. What have you found? Well, uh, I think the easiest way to explain it is using a frame from Dr. Ruha Benjamin that she introduces in her book, Race After Technology. And that frame is that algorithms or automated systems discriminate by default. So we have had this idea for a very long time that uh, algorithms are somehow more objective or more neutral or more unbiased. And that is not at all true. So when you change your thinking, when you assume 
that algorithms are going to discriminate, it becomes easier to spot instances where that is happening. Mm. And so in the book, I focus on places where AI is causing harms to people right now, actively. Uh, and then I also offer, you know, a couple of uh, a couple of things that make me a little optimistic about the future. So you say that it's not neutral. AI is not neutral. Why is that? Well, when we're talking about AI nowadays, as I said before, we tend to get confused with Hollywood images. And that to me makes a lot of sense because think about the phrase artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. It suggests there's a little brain inside the computer, right? When you hear the phrase machine learning, again, it suggests there's a brain inside the computer. And that leads to thinking about all the cool Hollywood stuff about you know, computers becoming sentient about like a perfectly, you know, algorithmically governed world, like all of the imaginary stuff, but it's not real. Like artificial intelligence is a branch of computer science. Mm -hmm. Machine learning is not about brains in the computer. It's a branch of computer science. Uh, it's a branch of artificial intelligence and it's just computational statistics. So when you say it that way, I think of things like in the workplace, how we aggregate um, marketing data and know things about our customers, mm -hmm. um, employee engagement surveys, mm -hmm. and how we think about that. And although now it's pretty employee engagement work, generally, it's, I don't want to say rudimentary, but it, it hasn't quite added the artificial intelligence, at least not in the programs that I've seen. However the way you ask the question around the data could be problematic. And I think that's the next thing in terms of employee engagement and certainly about all the aggregated data that we have and, and managers, um, chief marketing officers, et cetera, who are using their marketing data to decide where they're going to spend money, where how they're going to spend money and what products and services that they pull together. I mean, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot yeah. of data out there. And often we use the data without critically reflecting on it, without reflecting on who made it, how they made it, uh, what it's being used for. Uh, we just kind of let it slide by. But what I'm hoping that people get out of my last two books is the idea that it's important to critically reflect. So one of the things I really care about is computational empowerment, uh, helping people understand complex technical topics in plain language, right? So that we can make better decisions and not just be bamboozled by enormous outsized claims about how AI works or how data-driven programs work. So let's pause a little bit um, because I want to give people something to think about. One of the things you just said was oftentimes we just get this data and we don't really reflect on where it came from, how it was put together, what questions were asked to even get the data. If I'm buying data, because a lot of companies, they buy the data, mm -hmm. what would be questions that I should ask either before I buy the data or after I purchase these data sets? So you should definitely ask about the composition of the people who are in the data set. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to make sure that your data sets include a diverse sample. I like to tell a story about a friend of mine who teaches first grade 
and teaches first graders about collecting data because this is something that I keep in mind when I think about how all data is constructed. Mm -hmm. And in this first grade classroom, every Monday, they have a pocket survey. Uh, So two little first graders go around, one has a clipboard and one is the counter, and they count the number of pockets in the room uh, using tally marks, which I think is just adorable because first graders love pockets. Like, and then they talk about what's in their pockets and you know, kids always have weird stuff in their pockets and it's always adorable. And so the kids make the tally marks on the clipboard and then they put the tally marks up on a poster on the wall and they look at you know, their pocket tally over the course of the year. Super cute, right? Mm-hmm. And really good exercise for data literacy. Now, also when you think about how this data is produced, it's pretty easy to see where the flaws are. First graders are not great at counting. (laughs) First graders are not great at recording information, Mm -hmm. right? So between the process of making the tally marks and putting the tally marks on the wall and like having conversations about how many wood chips are in your pockets, you can see how information gets lost, Mm -hmm. right? And the tally marks on the wall are not going to be super precise, right? So there are always problems with data. There are always problems with the way that we collect data. And we tend to imagine that because we're collecting data with computers now, it's going to be that much more accurate. Eh, Not so much. Like our sensors, they don't really work as well as you think they do. The answers that you get are going to vary based on the way that you ask the question, based on the interface. Like there's all kinds of ambiguity, right? So my point is that data is socially constructed mm-hmm. and we need to think about the flaws in the process mm-hmm. uh, when we are looking at the finished data set. So auditing a data set for uh, source diversity is absolutely the first step. Okay, so now I've brought it in and I think it's, as good as it can get, if that's a way to say it. When I'm using this data, what are some of the things I ought to be thinking about? In your your book, or you've told stories about how a lot of the data sets just reinforce the systemic issues that we have as society anyway, such as redlining and how we continue to redline, the way we think about medicine and how medicine has only, you know, we're just now I'm a TikTok fan, so sorry. But one of the things I follow is a doctor who is uncovering things about Black people that and the way our medicine or the medicine is administered to us versus the data set and the way medicine has been treated and how they think about us, mainly because we just weren't in the studies. Mm -hmm. And so it, it just opened my eyes to, hey, wait a minute. We need to think a little bit, why Why is this? How much data, you know, what do I need to bring to my doctor to make sure that I get the right kind mm-hmm. of care? And you brought up a couple of those. Can you talk a little bit more about what you found in terms of how the data is being used, Sometimes, mostly unintentionally, because they're not asking these questions? Uh, well, I will say that my favorite doctor on TikTok is mm-hmm. a guy named Joel Burvell. Uh, he's on TikTok and Instagram, and he does videos about basically about medicine and in the way that it intersects with race. And there is a very long history of racism in medicine, of discrimination mm-hmm. in medicine. And when it comes to data-driven diagnostic systems, 
we see the legacy of that racism, of that bias in these systems. So you probably heard about uh, pulse oximeters during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Pulse oximeters were found to work uh, better on light skin than on dark skin. Well, facial recognition systems also Mm -hmm. work better on light skin than on dark skin, Mm -hmm. right? So we see instances of bias everywhere in technology. One of the things that I write about in the book is kidney transplants and the way that a racially biased metric for evaluating kidney function uh, has been involved in evaluating when people are eligible for the kidney transplant list. Mm -hmm. So you are eligible to get on the list to wait for kidney when your kidney function is at about 20%, right? Mm -hmm. So you have an EGFR score, an estimated glomerular filtration rate score of Mm -hmm. 20 or below. Mm -hmm. Now, until just about two years ago, that EGFR score was calculated differently for Black people and for non-Black people. So if you were Black, you would get a multiplier of 1.2 to 1.8, meaning Mm -hmm. that Black people had to be sicker than anybody else in order to be eligible for a kidney transplant, Mm -hmm. right? And that's not, that doesn't mean getting a kidney. It means being eligible to be on the wait list. Mm -hmm. And people can linger on the wait list for a very, very long time, right? So this metric Uh, This algorithm that was used to calculate the EGFR was racially biased. And this particular metric was embedded in every single diagnostic system, every single lab system out there, right? So it was a calculation and it was embedded in the code. And when something like this is embedded in code, it becomes impossible to see Mm -hmm. and it becomes very difficult to eradicate. And this particular multiplier was based on a flawed notion that Black people have greater muscle mass than other people, which is is not true. And it's just an example of how concepts of race, race is a social construct, but people take the social construct and they give it a biological reality, Mm -hmm. which is also not true. So we have to think about the way that these things operate in the world, and we have to critically reflect on how we're embedding them in our computational systems, right? So if you're building an algorithm, for example, to predict when people are going to lose kidney function and need a new kidney, well, if you're using this racist multiplier, then you're going to make a bad decision, Mm -hmm. right? And you're going to embed this flawed notion in the code. So, I mean, you, you've given the example about kidneys, but there are probably other places. I'm sitting here thinking there are other places that we probably, not just about people of color, but women and how we think about women. And yep. the fact that it's only been recent that we have studies that are inclusive of women mm-hmm. um, in general, let alone diversity on race or ethnicity or other factors. Exactly. exactly. What, what do I need to think? Who's, yeah, you need to think about who's in the data set and who's excluded from the data set. And then you need to think about challenging the notion that we should entirely replace our human-based systems with computer-based systems. Mm-hmm. What I argue is that we need more nuance in the discussion. So we need to give up 
on this idea that we're going to somehow be able to build algorithms that are going to deliver us from the condition of being human. Like the idea of the mm. um, this future world where uh, computers are doing everything for us and we just like sit back and, you know, get our groceries delivered and whatever. Like that is, that is a flawed fantasy. We can think about it in HR Mm -hmm. Uh, when we think about people with disabilities and Mm -hmm. whether they can even access job application systems, right? Like we know that there are, uh, that there are problems of bias in sorting algorithms that go Mm -hmm. through resumes, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But let's think about video interview systems. Well, if you're blind and you're doing a video interview, one of the things that sometimes gets evaluated in video interviews is, did the person maintain eye contact with Mm -hmm. the camera? Well, if you're blind, like often your, your eyes are not focusing in the way that, you know, your eyes could be somewhere else entirely. Mm -hmm. And then you would get dinged or marked down by the algorithm. Or even people. I mean, I I had a client once who he couldn't see straight on. So he had to sit like this or sit with his head tilted mm-hmm. so that he could interact and he got dinged again simply because he didn't look straight into the camera. Right. And that's, I mean, that's, that's terrible. Like that is a kind of bias. And mm-hmm. so this idea of normativity that gets enforced by computational systems is problematic. There's a there's also a trend in HR or was I don't know if people are still doing it where they take off the name of the person and then just kind of see through that and so mm-hmm. they've said only look at this in in um, some of the um, what do I call them um, resume hunters that yep. filter through those kinds of things. Does that help? Well, so that is a really good example because. This was very popular, especially among computer scientists for a while. They said, oh, mm-hmm. we're going to uh, we're going to get rid of bias by taking the names off of resumes. Uh, we're going to strategically redact things. And to me, this is about another blind spot on the part of the creators because if you are, say, a white man, you know, your resume says, you know, that you played on the basketball team. If you are a woman, uh, your resume says you played on the women's basketball team. Uh, if you are a white male engineer, you belong to the engineering club at your school. Mm-hmm. If you're a black male engineer, you belong to the National Society of Black Engineers, right? So one of the things that folks who are in the majority don't understand is that you can't just take off the name at the top of the resume because there's still there's still information. So let me give an example of how this happens computationally. There's a very famous case where Amazon tried to write an automated system that would process people's resumes. Mm -hmm. And they trained it uh, the same way that you train any machine learning system, where they took a whole bunch of data, they fed it in, they said to the computer, find the pattern, mathematical patterns in the computer, in the data computer said, okay. And they told the computer to optimize for resumes that looked like the resumes of people who had succeeded at Amazon already. Well, guess what? That is mostly folks who were white men from Mm -hmm. elite computer science departments. And the algorithm kicked out all of the women. Now it was 
likely not intentional, right? It was just an example of unconscious bias on the part of the people designing the algorithm, right? We all have unconscious bias. We're all trying to become better people, but we are not there yet. So we have unconscious bias. And when you create technology, you embed your own unconscious bias in the technology. Mm -hmm. So when we have small and homogeneous groups of people creating technology, then that technology is going to get the unconscious bias of their creators. So now we can look at this project and say, oh, of course, this is what was going to happen at the time. No, they didn't know that that was going to happen. But now we can make better decisions. Now Mm -hmm. we are 30 odd years into the digital revolution and we need to stop making these algorithmic systems that embed the biases of the past and pretending that it's somehow better than what we had before. Yeah, when you said that, it pops up the question that is so frequently used. Let's look at what worked before and then program it in. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the the best way to get the same thing you've always had. And if you're trying to do something different, then you have to ask a different question. It has to be more of a future-oriented question. I get so, Sometimes I get frustrated with um, people who are constantly saying, well, it worked before. What's wrong with it now? And now you're, you know, now you're going to have an uncomfortable conversation about it's not what worked before. It's what are you trying to achieve? And so the question that you really have to ask is with this data, if I understand what you've said so far with this data, what is it that I'm trying to achieve? And to have a, you know, an idea or at least a discussion with people on what are the things that we're trying to do. And it's it's so important to have a vision of where you want to go because that's what you should be pressing against. It's true. So we've talked a little bit about HR. We've talked about medicine. Are there other misconceptions or areas of bias that just kind of show up in different kinds of companies or manufacturing, supply chain, all of those areas? Have you seen instances of that? In the book, I focus on harms of AI in medicine, in criminal justice, in Mm -hmm. education, in predictive policing. And so my hope is that people will read about these these episodes and then take that knowledge and ask about what's happening in their own uh, in their own fields. Uh, there's been some really amazing journalism and scholarship around these topics. Uh, and so one of the things I'm doing in the book is I'm kind of calling attention to it, collecting it and lifting it up. Uh, because when you see stories of all of these harms piled up together, it hits differently. You know, maybe you saw the story in the New York Times about the man who was wrongfully arrested based on a facial recognition mismatch. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you saw another story a couple of years later about uh, this happening again. And you thought, oh, well, I guess that's a thing that happened. But actually, no, it's happening a lot, all the time, everywhere. It's just not necessarily getting covered, right? So we need to think about what are the potential problems that are happening inside our algorithmic systems, and we need to fix them before they end up in the headlines. If I were running a company, I would definitely have an algorithmic auditing program running, or I would put together a team doing algorithmic auditing, looking for these problems, just so I didn't end up in the news. Yes, this is the one place, well, in the news for the wrong reasons, right? Right, right. Um, You happened to mention a few minutes ago, um, the facial recognition and in policing. When you said that AI and policing, 
I have to tell you, I it never dawned on me that they were using. I, I think of the policing as, unless you're in the federal government, but is pretty antiquated and it's part of the problem. I, it, there's everything there's I, a lot of problems, believe me. Yeah. What? How is AI used in policing? Well, one of the cases that I focus on is the case of facial recognition used okay. in policing. So there was a study a few years ago called Gender Shades. And what this found was that facial recognition is biased. It's better at recognizing light skin than dark skin. It's better at recognizing men than recognizing women. It does not include trans and non-binary folks at all. And this was a study that was done by Joy Bolomwini, Timnit Gabru, Deborah Raji. Joy Bolomwini now runs the Algorithmic Justice League and is the subject of the movie Coded Bias. So one of the really interesting conclusions was that these results were released and the big companies that make facial recognition said, oh, uh, we didn't realize that this was you know, intersectionally inaccurate. We're just going to increase the diversity in the training data set, and then our, our systems will be more accurate. And one of the really interesting things that came out of the Gender Shades Project was the idea that, yes, this will work to make the programs more accurate, but actually a more just solution is to not use facial recognition and policing at all because technologies like facial recognition are disproportionately weaponized against communities of color, Mm. against poor communities. So to your earlier point about what are you optimizing for? What are you trying to achieve? If we're trying to achieve a world with greater social justice, Mm -hmm. then no, we would not use technologies like facial recognition in policing at all, period. So as you look forward on this whole topic, and you obviously have spent a lot of time thinking about today and the past and what we've done, et cetera, how do you see appropriate uses for AI across other areas, or at least in the near future, where we can minimize harm? Well, interestingly, we're using AI all the time without realizing it. So when you do a Google search, you are activating something like 250 different machine learning models, Mm -hmm. but you don't experience it as using AI. You just experience it as using technology. Mm -hmm. So people tend to call things AI when they feel special or new. And then when those things feel familiar, they just get called technology, right? And people often expect it to feel different when they Mm -hmm. use AI, right? Like this is one of the reasons people are so excited about chat GPT. Like they have all these ideas about what it's going to be like to talk to an AI bot. Mm -hmm. And when you actually do it, I mean, I encourage everybody to go out and play with chat GPT because it's fun, but it gets really boring really quickly, right? So it's not going to change everything. It's going to change a couple of things, but we're, we're going to like revert to the baseline pretty quickly. And also there are going to be social problems reflected in chat GPT's output uh, in whatever systems people build using it. Like there is no way of getting us away from the essential problems of being human. As much as we would like to be able to get away from it, right? (laughs) At least in our thinking, at least in our thinking. So I think the takeaways, at least for me, are one, understand where the data came from. Absolutely. Yes. 
understand where the data came from and understand the technologies that are being sold to you as being very fancy because often they don't work the way that uh, that people claim. Yeah, well, that's any sales pitch, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and two, the other thing is, is that once you decide, because we have what we have, and sometimes you just have to use what we have, what are the questions you want to ask against it? Of what is it that you're trying to achieve? And part of the question you're trying to achieve has to deal with fair, just, and not causing harm and constructing questions that include, or at least having your vision to include, how do we create something that is just? How do we minimize harm? Um, Where's harm most likely to be happening or disproportionate impact is actually happening? And how does that show up in this? And so I think anybody who, anybody can do that, whether you're in technology or not in technology. Is there a third question that we ought to be thinking about? So we've got the past, we've got the future. Is there a third question we should think about? I would encourage people to think about what you know about social problems, Mm -hmm. uh, what you know about, say, racial bias and hiring, and start looking for ways that your algorithmic systems could be discriminating. One of the things about algorithmic accountability reporting is when we go looking for problems, we pretty much find them. Yeah. It's not the hardest thing in the world to like find where a computer where an AI system is going wrong because they go wrong in very predictable ways. Uh, so inside organizations, what you can do is you can audit your technology. Uh, you can ask your vendors where are you getting your data from. Is it a diverse sample set? You can check your you know, your results from the programs that claim to surface the top resumes and ask, okay, are these actually a diverse uh, group of applicants? I think in HR, there are a lot of dashboards. Think about dashboards for every part of the process, not Mm -hmm. just for looking at what you've done overall, but Think about dashboards for early on in the process. What kinds of resumes are your recruiters actually seeing? And in medicine, as you're as you're getting as a somebody who's a part of my thing is always about caregiving because I did it for well over twenty five years mm-hmm. with my parents is now going in and saying, okay, I see these numbers that you're giving me. I see what your diagnosis is. Let's talk about where this came from. And how do we know that this doesn't have an, a disproportionate set of harm or absence, period? Just you don't have anything in here that would that would even indicate that there is some uniqueness about being a woman, about being someone of color, about whatever the topic is in terms of where we're going with that. Yeah. So how can people get a hold of you? I am on all the social media platforms and I'm at meredithbroussard.com. And my new book, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech is available everywhere the books are sold. All right. And as I understand, you're available for speaking engagements and conversations with executives on how they can get more educated about this. Is that right? I absolutely am. Okay. You got a taste of what she can bring to you. If nothing else, just have the conversation. 
you will learn so much from it. And you will learn so much from different people, bringing different people into your organizations just to have the conversation. You don't have to do anything about it. Think of it as a way in which you're expanding your growth areas, you're becoming more knowledgeable, and you're becoming a better leader. So with that, you know, we'll be back next Thursday. Please like, um, share, and talk about this as much as you can, because this is an area that, as Meredith has said, it's already guiding our lives. Google searches, uh, anything that's called machine learning, you're doing it and you don't even know what you're doing. So start thinking about this, put some interest in it, stop reading the headlines and going to Hollywood for the information. We'll talk to you next week. Well, as I said before, this is a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for following me. And if you really, really want to make things better and help me get the word out, please go like this wherever you're listening to your podcast. Follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. All of that's in the show notes. And for doing that, go to my website and click on the uh, network and you'll be able to get some free gifts that will help you figure out how to be the best leader that you can be. As I always say, if you like it, share it. If you don't like it, share it, because I guarantee it will definitely help you become the most remarkable leader you can be.